medium of documentary is dope in that you work within the space that you are given, you know, like, so you, you don't have the opportunity to, like, build a set, you know, light the character properly. In my view, a good character disappoints you. Like, in a narrative sense, like, if, if you want someone to get into a character or relate to them, you kind of build the character up and then you make them do something disappointing, you know, and I, in, in my view, that's when readers or watchers or listeners kind of become involved with the characters. Some of the things like that I've seen are really dope aesthetically, but they lack that, that heart to transport this story into territories unknown. You can say anything in the political commentary realm, but you shall not question what we are doing here as individual commentators. And I think it's a big issue, you know, like, why are you commentating on gender issues? Why are you commentating on these things? What percentage of yourself as a commentator is looking for publicity, revenue, awareness around your own personal brand? We all obsess about characters especially in this digitally charged era where the celebrity is king and queen of our fantasies. For example, I've often obsessed over this guy for various reasons. Who's that? Right there, blue cap and white hair, a new chap got tabs to bring an absolute nightmare. This guy too. Mission emphatic for my hip hoppers. And I don't mean those people who wear pants like they can't afford sizes that, that fit them. Or the ones that walk around grabbing their crotches like they're trying to see if everything is still in place. No, talking about underground hip-hop MCs, like base mental platform, like Robotech. I've even obsessed over place as a character. In this episode of I Know What You're Thinking, we look at the idea of characters and their roles in documentaries, books, adverts, as well as their place in history. There's been talk about how black people are portrayed on screen. The one example that comes to mind is the HBO series Insecure, where its second season adopted the idea of giving its characters dignity by using lighting with the right amount of intensity so that they don't look all bleached out. In essence, Molly isn't distorted, but rather looks well lit and beautiful, as she naturally is, especially when she says this. You know what? I'ma put a dozen eggs in a water gun, we're gonna roll to that house, and just I'ma spray his face on sight. I explored this idea of giving characters dignity on screen with Maseru born writer and visual storyteller Tidiso Monaheng. Monaheng has played a pivotal role in South Africa's pop culture through his critique. We spoke to him about A Gentle Magic, a documentary about skin bleaching and the perception of beauty, which he co-produced with Lerato Mbangeni. First off, he lets us in on how to render dignity to characters by simply letting them to be themselves. You let people speak. Yeah. That's what I've discovered, you know, like, and you go there with no preconceived notions of anything, really. You know, how to shoot something or how something should... And then, like, the medium of documentary is dope in that you work within the space that you are given, you know, like, so you you don't have to the, the, the opportunity to, like, build a set you know, light the character properly, design the thing, you know, like, 
so your 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 ability to design or your yeah your your your, your maximization of the given space is really where the documentary is where that shines also it was really dope just working with Lagato because she she has that eye for like you know what color combinations would work what type of background if we needed any background you know what i mean the making of a gentle magic had to go through a particular process from town to town emergence in salons kokasi where its fascinating characters were met so initially we had like um a few names that we knew and those names linked it, linked us to the other names but then as you also travel you get to meet other names and other people and then you know when you're online you get to see other things or like things get to spark your interest so and then and then the one day you going with Lagarde to the to the salon and then you know that's another you know vantage point to 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 depart from you know and then eventually you have all these stories and you sit in with all these stories or rather you you continuing on your trail and these stories start to connect without you even directing the thing cuz you're just asking questions right but all these people there are certain segments during your conversation that they're all saying the same thing you know um how much the products cost uh how they got into skin lightening their views on skin lightening their views on beauty in general you know and then you realize like it's no longer about um about skin lightening it's actually about beauty and perception then there's a necessity to tell a story with heart beyond the fancy camera tricks some of the things like that i've seen are really dope aesthetically but they lack that that heart to 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 transport this story into territories unknown so we're working with like ideas of what we want to project as opposed to how the story wants to tell itself like i said like going into the state we had like preconceived notions of what it means like in your skin you want to be white you know what i mean but that's that's not why like like people are proud to be black man whatever pride means to them that they are that and that's how they they self define so why do you want to impose your ideas of why people are skin lightening their skin and especially like why did you decide to do this thing if you know you've kind of already know the whole story from telling stories with heart we tap into how characters are often portrayed in mass media it goes without saying that this world is often riddled with tropes that makes us cringe author andrew miller becomes guide through the murky waters pointing at stereotypes mostly associated with ads we see on TV, books we read, and the hive mentality of media corporations. But what makes for a good character? He tells all. In my view, a good character disappoints you. Like in a narrative sense, like if if you want someone to get into a character or relate to them, you kind of build the character up and then you make them do something disappointing. you know and at in in my view that's when readers or watchers or listeners kind of become involved with the characters when the character kind of almost lets them down a little bit you know to be some offoking in the last stop the novel that was published i think this year it's just a story about a taxi driver and the guy's just going through his life you know 
And I think what, what's so appealing to me about this, this guy is you relate, to his, you relate to his daily journey and his struggle. But also I find myself quite compelled by him because he just was a little disappointing as well as a, as a guy, you know. And, I, and it makes me think of, I guess, myself. Yeah, it makes me think of other people I know. And that, for me, it was a character who had a lot of nuance. And so I just kept on turning the page. I think you see it a lot, you know, in pop TV, pop, American pop series, you know. So you can go across Breaking Bad, you can go to Shameless, you can go to all these, all these shows. You know, they, they lead characters, uh, they, they do bad things uh, as well as good things, yeah. So I, I think you see a lot of it all around. Part of the reason why advertising is criticized so much is in its insistence to stereotype characters. I think South Africa struggles a lot because we don't know each other. Uh, and so, you know, there's this cross-racial cultural thing. Um, and so we rely quite a lot on, on pretty simplistic cardboard cutout stereotypes in order to be able to deal with a character from anywhere else other than where you are, you know? And so you see a lot of stereotyping, obviously in advertising media and all that kind of stuff, which is to be expected. I mean, advertising is not a glorious business anywhere in the world, you know? Um, but I think you also see it a lot in South African writing, mm. you know, what, you, what I see, and, and you see it a lot with young writers, like when you're working on a manuscript level, uh, and so you, you're dealing with manuscripts that may or may not be published, you know, aspirational writing, as well as published writing, people really struggle in South Africa to write across the line, across the racial line. So white people really struggle to write black characters and black writers often just don't write white characters either, you know. And what you see definitely with the kind of white writers writing black characters, uh, very delicate, scary turf for white people, you know. So instead of giving the character nuance and flaws, it's much easier just to have them adhere to a few stereotypical kind of preconceived notions and then just leave them there, you know, and let them be black. And that's enough, you know. Yeah, so I, I think you see a lot of that in, in South African kind of post-94 creative work. Then there's the cause versus character thing, whereby the story becomes a lecture at the expense of characters in it. Pretty much a glorified public service announcement. Most of us as creators are actually in the PR or advertising or marketing industry. And so we've got this kind of almost brief mindset, you know, okay, what's this book going to be about? It's going to be about being queer. You know, and just that idea then leads you off down that didactic kind of sort of this book is going to be addressing a social issue, you know, and because we're so geared towards addressing issues and meeting the brief and all of that, we kind of charge off in that direction. That's what we think a book is. It's a lesson. And so I think we kind of instinctively head in that direction. I think that's kind of at the root of it. And it's actually really hard to get into a character as a writer or as a creative to create a character. It's a tricky business, yeah. And so I think we, because we're so primed around issues as South Africans and global people at the moment, we, we just veer off in that direction at our own expense, of course, and at the expense of the poor person watching or reading this thing that you've done. Our fixation with personality has to stem from somewhere, right? Right? I think we have a natural narrative tendency to go for personalities and figures. You know, that the, the, these are the things we latch onto in stories. And now we've been given this kind of digital steroids that facilitates this kind of very simplistic binary 
thinking and binary forms of supposed debate. And, and so now it's just become kind of this kind of habit that, that is getting out of control with us. And it's easy, you know, stereotypes, it's really easy to engage with a narrative trope. You don't have to think much. Yeah. It's much harder to see Donald Trump as a human being who may have redeeming features than it is to see that grotesque thing. Yeah. And I think that applies across all, all, all kind of all kind of aspects of our media life. So my feeling is we kind of may be losing a little bit of the muscle that you need to see nuance. You know, and, and with muscle, the less you use it, the less you have, you know. Uh, and, and so we're kind of spiraling off into a sort of information age and information structure where these kind of very generic, easily constructed and perceived narrative tropes and character tropes are the meat and potatoes of our existence. And they are, of course, the commercial meat and potatoes, you know. So th this is the idea of a simplistic character is what makes advertising and all of this stuff work in the digital age. Okay, the media machine has the tendency to give more importance to certain stories than others. What is it that lies at the heart of this phenom, though? The frontier for South African storytellers is this kind of fragility of self, you know. So I think we all really struggle as South Africans to articulate just how fragile we are. You know, and so we kind of tend to look out, as we were saying earlier, at issues, you know, issues based narratives and that kind of thing. You know, we, 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 we kind of prone to head in that direction when it comes to kind of articulating the, the, the weirdness and weaknesses of self. We really struggle in that direction. And I think that applies across all racial and cultural groups. Mm -hmm. I think that kind of that yeah, the, the, the ability to kind of look inward as a creative and articulate just how strange it is to be in this particular time and place at the moment. Yeah, we really struggle with that. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think that's the frontier that maybe our new generations will, 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 will develop that skill uh, yeah, and, and with a little bit more sophistication than, than we have going at the moment. History is everything, some people will say. If you don't know your history and the characters that made it, you don't know where you headed. A bit of an exaggeration? Well, let's hear. To my mind, history is a muscle that needs to be exercised. And reading history is actually really difficult because it's not a question of reading a book. It's a question of reading a book and interpreting it according to where you are at the moment and then following all the leads that are laid down in that book. You know, chasing up references, finding the other book referred to, deciding whether that other book or this book is actually just a load of propaganda and all of that kind of stuff. It's an enormous effort, you know. So what I believe we do, and I think cognitive scientists show us this again and again, is instead of having to kind of go through this like enormous, long effort, we just kind of you know, slot into our instinctive story zone. And so what you were told when you were a kid is kind of what sticks. Mm. And you know it isn't true what you were told, but you've never really gone to the effort of figuring out what may have been the truth. And so you just stick with the simple thing that kind of makes rough sense. The idea of the great trek, you know, Shaka Zulu, this kind of stuff, that's all we really know, you know. And, and because we don't really need to use that muscle. Like there's no urgency to develop your historical muscle, you know, the, so we don't. And whatever urgency we have gets, kind of gets funneled into this kind of digital age. And that saps up all our residual energy and attention. And so I, I just think we don't, you know, yeah, we really struggle to put in that kind of effort. And if you're working a nine to five in a call center, like ready, you're going to get home on a Thursday night and you're going to crack open your history book. I mean, that just doesn't happen anymore. 
Miller tells of a certain character in South African history who, as a rogue, makes us realize that it's not as simple as black and white. Probably Conrad the Base, which is like his story is the story of a rogue, a rogue Afrikaner in the Eastern Cape who became embedded into Tlaza culture and, and formed a whole kind of uh, uh, sort of power base of his own including marriage and offspring, and then kind of just skedaddled up through South Africa um, and eventually disappeared through Mozambique and was never seen again, you know. And there's a whole generation, it's like the Dun, the Dun generation in KZN, this whole multiracial generation that, that came up in a time that the norms of history as we understand it in South Africa, yeah, it just, everything we know says that that stuff never happened, you know. So then you start to look at like, how nuanced was it, like, in South African history? Who was responsible for what? And once you start looking at that, then everything's really complicated. You know, you, you look at the, the influence of auxiliary forces in colonization. You know, the British were never at the front of their own battles. They used local people, local forces. So who were those local people? They were us. So when you go, like, you know, I look at history as they were the white guys and the black guys, the English and the Afrikaners, the Tlaza and the Zulus, and they all kind of conflicted against each other. But once you start digging into the actual details of the conflict, you find everyone's kind of compromised in one area or another. Once upon a time, when the city of Jersey was trying to identify its own culture in the late 90s and early 2000s, there existed a fierce spoken word scene. Miller found himself immersed in it as the only white character in the house. I mean, I was always an outsider of that scene. I, and I was lucky enough to participate in it for a little bit, you know. And it really changed how I viewed, I don't know, us as a people. And I think the most interesting thing to me as a kind of whitey looking in from the outside and then kind of participating a bit was this kind of ability that that scene had to say the most hardcore things, you know? Like, I had never heard people say the stuff that I heard on those stages, you know? And, and some intensely political, and as a white person, kind of almost savage-sounding stuff, you know, in, in very strong poetic terms and with exceptional kind of delivery skill to the point where I was thinking a lot of the time when I first encountered this thing, I was like, damn, like... How are we all going to look at each other in the eye when this session's finished, you know? And the extraordinary thing for me was that that was the most glorious part of it. People would, no matter where they were coming from, would say these incredibly weird and strange and violent and touching things. And then once the session was over, everyone would like share a, a few beers and a blunt and, and then go their different ways really happily, you know? And so it's really interesting to get to know militant motherfuckers as human beings, you know, because I think for white people in South Africa, militant black people are the scariest thing in their soul, you know, much more than the crime and violence. And that is what white people never want is to be questioned morally, you know? So to get into an environment where all these questions were being asked and then people were just so relaxed and friendly. <laughs> yeah. It absolutely changed how I saw South Africa. Yeah. But let's hit the brakes for a little. You're a white guy writing about black people, isn't it, Miller? Isn't the white male gaze at play in this scenario? It's a massive intellectual challenge being a middle-aged white male writer in South Africa um, because you know you are the problem, you know, but you still want to write, you know. So, like, intellectually, there's a, a big part of me that knows, like, I need to step off 
certain places because it's not my time and it's not my space. And other people need to tell these stories rather than me, you know. But I still want to write, you know. Yeah, so it's, I think it's a very difficult and kind of complex thing. And, and I know from my life the kind of talk that happens around the knitting circle when you've had a few beers and stuff, you know. So I know, because I've heard it again and again from young black people, like the, the kind of emotional resonance of this sort of stern apartheid era, white male gaze. And that for me, I think, is the key. How do you get as a white writer and into, into an editorial environment where you're sharing editorial critiques and thoughts with young black people? It's actually really difficult for whiteies to do that, you know. And so you can go through a whole editorial process and develop and publish a book without ever having consulted or talked to a editor or a, a cultural influence that can bring you balance, you know. And I think it's a real issue, you know, for, for writers and the editorial community and so forth, you know. Uh, getting access to culturally diverse input and intellectually rigorous input is a really difficult thing, you know. And so you and so you can you can write and publish books without ever addressing these things actively as a writer in your own head or in conversation, you know. So the, the, you know, and you see yourself doing it all the time. You can you can dig the hole for yourself, jump in it, and pour the sand on top. And you know you're kind of doing it. You know you know you need some kind of other influence in what you're doing, but you know. You don't get it, and then you publish the book, and then you're like, oh, God, I hope so-and-so doesn't read it because he's going to kill me. Yeah, but he doesn't because he's not interested in your book anyway. Yeah, and then off you go. Yeah. So I think editorial, 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 I think it's a really big thing. And, and the problem, of course, with patriarchy, the white male gaze and everything, is that everything's set up so that white men sit on top of the, of the power system. So they can give editorial input to everyone else's shit, you know. But uh, uh, access for, for the male gaze to new voices and new ideas in a way that doesn't make you, like, want to stop writing, yeah, that's a big challenge. Yeah. And unfortunately, I think for writers, you have to leave your room or your office to get it right, you know, and most writers like to sit in their office. We South Africans love to talk, and that is indicative in our analysis of politics, sports, and cultural issues. And come on, let's face it, a sure way of advancing your career in the media space is if you brand yourself as a public intellectual. But what are some of the blind spots in this area, especially when we think characters that comment on stories about you and I? I understand what it is to be a political journalist and a commentator and that thing, and I understand what it is to publish to run a publication and to have to make money and all of these kinds of things. So it's a very difficult and complicated space. But I have noticed, like the, the, the one rule that kind of, that governs them all is you shall not question the space. I've made that mistake a few times and I've been punished for it. You can say anything in the political commentary realm, but you shall not question what we are doing here as individual commentators. And I think it's a big issue, you know, like, why are you commentating on gender issues? Why are you commentating on these things? What percentage of yourself as a commentator is looking for publicity, revenue, awareness around your own personal brand? And what percentage of you is actually intellectually invested in your content? And then what percentage of you is emotionally invested in content that also has to do with your life as a South African? I don't see many people asking those questions. And so, as a result, I think we risk turning into a pantomime of ourselves. So I feel like a lot of our 
a lot of our analysis is it falls into that pantomime category and it's very predictable and it's not going to tell you anything you didn't already know and the voices are very very predictable yeah so i think there's a level of self-analysis required that we haven't carried out yet and i see the same challenge in the states as well you know i like again and again you you kind of hear journalists and you read journalists who are identifying this issue like we know Donald Trump has us on a string. You know, we know that he's pulling that string and we're jumping. And yet here we are jumping again, even though we're talking about how we're jumping for Donald, but we're powerless because we have to jump because it's our business as journalists to talk about these things. How do you not talk about the outrageous stuff and so on and so on? But it becomes an intellectual black hole, you know? Yeah, so I think, I think across the world, there's this issue of self-analysis of what it is to be a commentator that, that individual journos and opinionists and, and so on are, are going to have to grapple with, you know, because I think in, in certain ways, people slowly start to turn away from media, you know, yeah, fake news, all that kind of stuff. That's one aspect of it. The other aspect is that the analysis is kind of, you know, you go through the whole thing leading up to elections and you read the analysis and then it's just wrong. And you feel a little like, well, you went to Yale and Harvard and you, you know, you did all these things. How come your analysis is so dodgy, Mr. Journalist? You know, why don't I just sit under a tree and learn how to play chess? You know, isn't that a better use of my personal intellectual time? We are curious. We are nosy. We are concerned. So the fixation about each other isn't going anywhere. As a human race, we've evolved to be tribes, clans, crews. So it's only natural to glorify or throw shade to those immediate to our space. So being a character is all in a daze. Own it. This has been I Know What You're Thinking with me, Kachisomnisi.